Welcome to Searching for Mana, the podcast that investigates the mana. That's the superpower in some of the most influential leaders who are building the future in tech innovation and finance. I'm Lloyd Wahead, a London-born entrepreneur and headhunter with over 15 years experience on a mission to discover what drives our guests to succeed. How have they got to the top? What attributes have excelled in their career? Listen to find out. Welcome to Searching for Mana. Welcome to Searching for Mana, Karen. Hi, morning. <laughs> um, for the introduction, Karen Elliott is a Newcastle University um, Business School senior lecturer with, um, with an interest um, within fintech. So really excited to have Karen on the show and get a different vantage point where acab- academia crosses over into um, commerce and, and Karen's background has certainly done that. Um, she's been um, listed as one of Innovate Finance standout 35 policymakers and regulatory experts, which makes some sense um, when you look at the work Karen's been doing and indeed, actually, um, the, the focus of her PhD um, was sociology as a STEM um, and policy evaluation. So um, that was uh, 2013 when you completed that, Karen, I believe. And so you've had, um, you know, several years since then um, to use that education and uh, do all the things that you're doing. So that's... Um, a brief introduction for me. Perhaps you could be so kind to um, talk for in a little more detail uh, your background um, and what you're focused on, Karen. Yeah. So, like you say, um, the PhD I finished at Durham University in 2013, but there's a backstory before then to getting to Durham University. So, um, initially, I left school with with nine O levels back then. So I'm showing my age, and um, I I really didn't like education that much because I couldn't focus on what I was really interested in seeing. For instance, in history, I wanted to look at the Egyptian hieroglyphs rather than the feudal system for medieval times. And so I went straight into, um, well, fell into, as many people do, sort of project management, but systems testing. Now, that's really influential in my thinking because at that time, I was looking and testing pensions management systems for, for British Rail. Okay. Um, more on the technical side, looking how they worked. And the reason that's important is then when I came back into academia later, systems feature a lot in in how I look at the world. But in between those times, so I went into industry testing systems, and then I got the opportunity to, to be entrepreneurial, to run my own business for a while, which gave me a lesson in ethics because my business partner, despite having a contract, him and his female partner decided to take all the, all the profits and clear the business out. So at 24, I was then stuck without an occupation, um, looking at how I rebuild my life. So then I went back into project management and started working um, in the PRINCE2 framework there, so projects in complex environments, and looking again at working in the Northeast for for difficulties. So dealing with people who had um, social problems, looking how you can help build them up, draw them out of exclusion of society etc and that developed into a program management level so then i was running different projects around that in the northeast and i got to the point where i'd studied for two 
two degrees at that point. The first one was in sports um, science, which included a lot of focus on sports psychology. And this is where I got interested in behavioral science and how um, people's behavior and their psychology pan out in different behaviors or in terms of cognitive dissonance, you're saying something, but you're actually behaving in a totally different way. So this got me interested in how do I manage people? And then um, when I fell pregnant with my son, I decided, it's time for a change. I've done this for a, for a long time. I enjoyed the, the kind of voyages into psychology and sociology and how they panned out. So I'll have a look. So I looked around, I live in Durham. So there was a job opportunity came up at Durham University just part-time as a research assistant working on the Journal of Medical Humanities. So I went into that and having been so busy running projects, I actually did all of the work in half a day. So this opened up opportunities to work with anthropology, with sociology, to look at different aspects of working new statistical analysis and qualitative analysis, because I actually was lucky that I'd done both in industry. And then I got the opportunity to do a further master's purely in research methods. So that covers the whole spectrum from statistics and quantitative measurements through to qualitative, but also something new that came across, which was qualitative comparative analysis and fuzzy sets. And people go, what is that? And it's sort of a bridge between, because you know when you have the traditional Venn diagrams and you have the cross section, the overlap between the two of the set memberships, how do you explain that bit? And Professor Charles Reagan, about 30 years ago, came up with a way to actually look at set membership and how much of the subset of X and Y and how this plays out to tell you different recipes and configurations of necessary and sufficient conditions to lead to an outcome. So say in management, if you were looking, you do the traditional qualitative analysis, it looks at the net effects of say, I've written a paper on um, research orchestrations with some colleagues looking at how different aspects of profit, sales, managerial attitude, impact on the profit and performance. And if you just did quantitative, you just get one significant model through regression. But with qualitative comparison, you get the different recipes of the different assets that are necessarily sufficient, that can be absent or present, and give you different ways of managing. So while I was doing that, part-time having my son and working part-time at university, I was approached by the business school because they were looking to develop a project management module. And they'd heard that I was actually from, from that industry background. So in true complexity style, which I'll explain later, I moved to the business school and started writing and developing project management modules, which I've been teaching ever since. And then I also taught that in the language school in, in, in Durham because they had um, translation students who were graduating, then becoming project managers because they worked in, in a slightly different format. So if I come back to the complexity in the systems bit to tie that bit together, um, an instrumental emeritus professor now at Durham University, Professor David Byrne, not of talking heads, but spelt the same, um, he fascinated me because I really struggled with the transition surrounded by all the theoretical perspectives that were in psychology and sociology and tying them together because I liked, you know, actor network theories, symbolic interactionism, some of Carl Jung's theories, et cetera. But I was struggling to sort of fit them into a nice framework and sat down in his class and he said, is anybody struggling with this aspect? And I said, yeah, it's because I, I, I see that they fit together in, in reality as I view it as a, as a combination, as an overlap. There's interdependencies between the theories that I quite like, but I'm sort of being driven to put on a pair of lenses and look 
at the world through a specific perspective. And he said, that's because you're a complex systems thinker. And I said, all right, that makes sense because of my background, etc. He said, yeah, what the world is, is a series of systems. He said, if you think about them nesting, he said, we're sat here in Durham University, which is nested in the system of Bristol Group Universities, which is nested in, you know, the higher education tables system, which is then nested in the global university system. And he said, if you pull them out like Russian dolls, you unpack them then if something changes in one system, necessarily changes and adapts, and something will occur in the other systems that kicks off this raft of complex change throughout the different systems. And if we think about that now in context of COVID-19, we can see that the impact of that virus has swept across all the global complex adaptive systems. And everybody's adapting, everybody's locked down at different levels, everybody's unlocking at different levels. We've now got a hotspot in Leicester. The US are finding that their lockdown, perhaps absence of lockdown is, is causing problems. So for me, it makes sense to look at the world like that. And then also to add humans are just, they add on the extra little consciousness bit. So in terms of a shout to psychology that humans are conscious com complex adaptive systems. And why is that? Because we actually have the ability to choose and we have agency and we can you know, comply or not comply with the lockdown. Um, as a Liverpool fan, you know, some of my fellow fans decided to go and party and, and do various things. So you can see that this consciousness element gives you the complex adaptive system of your brain, different options. And then if you link this all together, you can get a nice picture of reality about how it's working. And that's how I apply it to, to um, policy implementation and looking at what's happening in the fintech sector, because that's adapting and emerging, which is another key element of systems. They adapt and something else emerges. And we can see that as we get different startups and against the incumbent banks who are also now starting to adapt because of the presence of this new tier of companies coming into their sector. Yeah. So I hope that sounds interesting and not too much content all at once <laughs> no absolutely fascinating and we'll um go through different parts of that and um we'll come back to the fintech space because it is a really interesting phase and um certainly your and my um interest in it are more macro and giving advice and um certainly considering you know what type of methodologies companies should be using to make sure they're as um, productive as possible moving forward. Um, but there's so much there for us to, to dig into. So um, let's kind of go through the bio, Karen. Um, with the um, company that are really uh, quite kind of early phase in your career, um, you set up with a couple other people by the sounds of it, which um, I assume was some type of um, project management, business analysis consultancy. Um, is that, is that uh, right? Uh, slightly different. We, we were consulting in industry, but it was actually around um, the selling of products. How can you sell products effectively and understand the psychology of your customers? Okay, that's fascinating. Uh, so we lots, lots of different sectors, but like I say, it was um, it was a big lesson in in ethics and trust, which, as we'll yeah. talk later, has become now a central focus for me. Yeah. In so, so that was going to be. Um, was going to be my question really is you know with all of the um things that you understand now 
if you look back at it, it was a lesson in ethics. So how could you have seen that? It was the person you decided to go into business with, yeah. um, didn't share the same value system as you. Would there be some advice you could give anybody who's looking to found with people or going in an early stage that you um, specifically could have in reflection have found that out before you know, having the terrible experience of being in business. Yeah, I mean, I was I was young at the time. I was only about 23, 24. And I think, I think yourself as a person, like um, also like a personal impact around that time was that my father passed away when I was 22. So I think I had to recognize, reflecting on it, that I was pretty vulnerable. I was I was looking to to reestablish who I was without this significant person in my life. So then again, when you're young, like I see a lot of um, people in their 20s, my students setting up their new projects, et cetera, and they run into similar problems where I think that you're so keen to have your ideas formalized that more experienced people can sometimes take advantage of that and, yeah. and, and come under the, the promise of what I would call a smiling assassin. Uh, they're all, yeah, that's a great idea, Karen. Yeah, that's really good. Oh, you can do this and this. Oh yeah, you've got the experience of systems and you understand people. Let's just take that and then thank you very much. And is there a key way to, to be aware of that? There are some key tells where perhaps we're all used to um, memorandums of understanding with working people. And I think that in trusting, I say a key part of the theory of trusting is, is um, one of my former colleagues at Durham, sadly no longer with us, um, had a system called the ABI plus model. And um, we're using that in current research. And this is how people trust. So it's the ability. So do you perceive that the person has the ability to deliver what they say good you? Are they benevolent? Are they willing to share as much as you're sharing with them? And do you, do you recognize integrity actually? You know, do you do your research on their background and see that they've worked with other people, maybe other startups? And then the plus bit is the predictability. So for instance, in interacting with each other, you build up that rapport and you trust that people are gonna do what they're going to say. So, um, you know, for a very simple overview, if you interact with someone on a scale of, and people have heard this 10 times, you look and think, was it a positive experience and did they behave in the ABI plus model that I expected them to do in sharing their ideas, bringing ideas to the table that will develop our project, or am I doing all the giving and nothing's really coming forward for them. And then you could evaluate, okay, on out of the 10 times we've interacted, how much have I been giving of my ideas without any guarantee of the IP being covered? And this person is just going, yeah, it's just very interesting making lots of milk. <laughs> I mean, that seems very obvious, but I think if you're eager and you've got good ideas, it's vital to think about the ability, benevolence, integrity, and how many times you've actually interacted with that person before you divide, you know, divide Divulge, sorry, divulge the, the golden nugget of what you're trying yeah. to do that would give you competitive advantage in the industry. Yeah, there's, um, there's um, in relationship psychology, the, the matching hypotheses, which, yeah. is, which is super similar. It's, um, you know, people, if you think of um, a relationship, you know, romantic, business, whatever it might be, there's an equity in and out of a bank account. This is a terrible way to think, but this is what, this is what I was taught in psychology. This is what I was taught about psychology. Um, then, you know, you have to look at um, it from a selfish gene and think, well, 
if I'm taking this, then what's the value that I'm giving? Or there's an inequity in this relationship. And, you know, I think that actually, if we draw that back to, you know, um, startup land, that's something that certainly over the last several years, people have become very aware of. You know, I had um, yeah. Cap Desk on the show recently, um, Christian, the CEO, um, his whole business is, is centered around you know, really driving home the message that, of course, you want everybody on the same mission and you want transparency with equity in the team. Um, and a lot of the work that I think we'll get on to talking about in the future of work is more about purpose in preference to, um, yeah. you know, kind of little building blocks of Lego incentives where people have to go up a ladder. And so what you're talking about there is um, is one of the most important things. It can sound so crude, but of course... That's how you have to think. So, you know, you, you were young, like you say, you're at a vulnerable stage and I'm sure you learned from that experience. And then you made sure that when you went into relationships moving forward for whatever reason, in, but in business, you know, there was maybe a bit more prep before, like you say, the golden nugget was, um, was given. And that's really important for, um, for people to learn in their, in, their, in their 20s or in their early phase of their career. Yeah. If we um, add the caveat that there's no fail-safe, though, some people are really good at the at the smiling assassin, and um, I wouldn't say it has never happened again because it has. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's a human quality because what you were talking about there is autonomy, mastery, and purpose. So Dan Pink first coined this, which I really like, and I, I, I demonstrate to that students that there's been lots of research saying, you know, what what does drive people? Is it that pure reward of the cash reward? You know, you dangle the carrot of of um, money and we're just humans are just you know better smelling horses or donkeys that just go for the carrot but it works out in funny ways so like yeah. he did some experiments with mit yeah. and said okay we'll we'll set a task that's very straightforward and we'll we'll give money and of course it's a very straightforward cognitive task that you can do easily then money is always an incentive okay it's always going to drive people to get the bigger salary whatever but when it becomes cognitively complex and i'm really quoting him here he said what they tested was in different areas is when the pressure was on to perform at a high cognitive level the high performance failed even though the reward was large because what hit was the amygdala hijack so what we have been built to us from when we were hunter-gatherers is three responses to threat or stress. It's fight, flight, or freeze. And that's what our brain is hotwired to do. It kicks in in 0.2 of a second. So like I say to my students, when you sit down in that exam room, you are going to get the hijack. It is going to hijack you where your brain goes completely blank, your emotion, you feel your whole body full of adrenaline, cortisol is the stress. Um, drug in our bodies that makes us feel stressed and we think, I can't remember, I can't remember, I can't remember. Or the first time you sat in a car and you know, going, signal, lights, maneuver, and you're going, what, 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 what? I can't do this. And, uh, and, that, and that's what we've got. So with autonomy, mastery, and purpose, what he was saying was that there's this sort of complex system relationship where the, if the reward is set high for a highly cognitive task, which could be programming, coding, etc. So if you produce the best piece of code, we're going to give you X zillions amounts of pounds as reward. It had that converse effect of in, in inverting the, the hijack and therefore they couldn't perform. And they tested this. They said, oh, well, we tested this in America. Okay, let's go and take it to India where, you know, $50 or whatever it was seems like a lot more. But the same thing happened. So Dan Pink's argument, which I, which I like, is that 
Um, you know, why do people play guitars? It's not because they're ever going to be Bob Dylan or um, a great guitarist or a rock singer or whatever. It's because it's autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Same reason I play tennis. I'm not unfortunately ever going to be um, Serena Williams or any other top female players, but it's it's my ability, again, back to the consciousness, my ability to choose. I want to master something that I like doing, and it gives me purpose. And then if you translate that into, into the FinTech Center, for instance, there's a lot of work. Like I say, the recent um, UKRI just funded, which I'm really excited about, is the Global Open Finance Center of Excellence in Edinburgh University, which is going to do a lot of great work to look at how do we address financial inclusion in the FinTech era, making sure we have like a social license to operate fintech across not just the customer base, but across society, which is really important. And that's what seems to be driving the autonomy, mastery and purpose for a lot of people in the fintech space, not all of them. But like I say, again, if we're going back to the idea of how do we protect ourselves against losing our golden nuggets, it's, it's a tricky one. But yep. part of this, I, I find is that the purpose motive is driving people a lot more than say, in my generation, when I first went into the workplace, it was just, I was there nine to five, did what I was expected to do, did a little bit of thinking, um, but not as much as I see now coming through, which is the future of work that we're gonna yeah. get on. It's, it's, it's starkly moved that way and we'll carry on. There's a study and I can't remember who the professor is, Karen, um, but I'll put it in the show notes, um, where they studied 250, individuals in several large organizations. Some organizations were excellent in terms of how they incentivized and managed mm-hmm. uh, and became profitable and some were terrible and um, hit an iceberg and went out of business. And what they found by surveying the participants every single day, so there were 12,000 forms sent back. So this is quite big in academia for a, a piece yeah. of work, was that um, people were most happy when they felt each day they had pr- they had been productive with something that they perceived as mattering, which is saying the same thing, I think, as, as, as what you are. And I think um, then if you come back to incentives and um, the study that you talked about, it's even more complex, isn't it? And it uh, goes into that chaos theory, which is if the piece of work is cognitively tricky, then it also depends over what type of time frame you have to do the best work. So if you consider someone like um, Larry or Sergey at Google, you know, they're very famous saying, you can basically do nothing in a year, you can do some pretty good stuff in 10, you know, mm-hmm. you can change the world in 20. And so the value proposition that they bring into Google is uh, spawned all of these wonderful initiatives like on a Friday, just do what you want and out of that, you know, Gmail has um, has come about that that pure yeah, ability. To- uh, yeah, Dan Pink to- talked about this. He said he said that they just said you know they have these great meetings where they just say once a month for twenty four hours you can go and work on whatever yeah. with whoever you want and just do it and then come back and we'll have beer and cakes and discuss and like you say that's produced patches, new developments in technology, etc. So I like say leadership is also a key part of this complex puzzles like what is the good leader and what's emerging out of some research around the myth of of digital transformation that as most of us know it's not just about the tech because humans actually are designing that tech and they're just as 
let's say, emotionally fallible as all of us in terms of sitting down to create that piece of code that's going to change the world, then they're also, it depends if they've had an argument where, or how they are emotionally as to whether they can do it or they feel stressed and the cortisol kicks and then they don't produce as good a job. Yeah. And then it takes the leader to actually say, you know, I don't, I don't know it all. It's like being an academic, I say to my students, sometimes they expect you to know everything. And I'm saying there's no way that I can possibly know everything about yeah. fintech, about psychology, sociology. But if we work together as a team, you let me know about a blog you've read on some aspect of fintech, then I can get more of an overview. But as a leader, then you have to admit, I don't know anything. But if I work collectively and push the innovation and pull it back through the team from them, you're going to have a better result. And um, Gerald Kane and some Deloitte um, consultants did this in a book and they've come up with like a nice DNA chart. I'll, I'll send you the reference, a nice DNA chart, 23 points. They looked at early, early um, developing companies, developing companies, and then the mature ones like your Googles and your Yahoo's, yeah. etc. in Silicon Valley and said, what are they looking at? What, what, how does their culture work? And this is what they said, but it said, you don't want to tackle all 23 DNA points at once to reach digital transformation. You have to take the people with you and acknowledge, you know, their skills gaps, which we, is relevant to the future of work. How do we address them? Because people will invoke the hijack because they're, I don't have those skills. What's going to happen to my job? And then if you put that in the context of what's happened in COVID-19, I think the skills issue is going to even come more to the yeah. fore. And of course, in working in um, machine learning and then a subset with AI and robotics, there's also that threat as well. It thinks the robots are coming. You know, I get asked that a lot. Is that is the algorithm going to replace my job? I'm like, potentially, but it might open you up to do something more exciting. Yeah. But that then makes people fearful because they're going, but th this is what I've always done. Yeah. So okay. how do I get from there to there? And this is explored in um, Joe Kane's book about how you look at the DNA of the company. You know, is the company actually ready to transform in terms of its people? Because you might buy the off-the-shelf product, the technology, but if the people are fearful of it or don't have the skills to use it, what's the point? <laughs> It's not yeah. going to work, but companies do do that when they're at the maturing stage to try and keep their their competitive advantage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, but but in in the truest sense of like, let's say a deep technology business where yeah. obviously the technology um, can go viral and is hyper important. The company that goes from small to medium to large will internally also have a masterclass of. Um, management systems within it most likely the, the question i have for you is thinking through um the next 10 20 years um and that question that everyone asked you uh, which i won't exactly ask which is you know is, is a robot's going to take our job because your point's completely correct right i mean it will take some parts of professions yeah. but it will enable others where do you see that affecting the organization do you think that the middle and those traditional kind of management roles could be where, where there's disruption? Do you think the lower uh, type of obvious automated administrative roles go? Um, and if that's the case, if that's broadly what I read and, and people say, then what becomes the things to upskill in if you want to be a leader who's successful? Does the leader need to also have excellent influencing managerial skills? Um, 
because their layer of management has been taken out. So suddenly you have the top and the bottom more connected through technology. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a very good observation. And that's what I've learned. I say in the last six years, I've been involved in the fintech side, but coming at it, like you say, from a, a social science perspective. But I also learned to code and program at a, a very basic level, I will add. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, so I can understand what's going on in the algorithms and have an appreciation about how to tie two together. But I think that's true. And, and having spoken to lots of experts on, on both sides, on the social science side and the computer science side, yep. they say definitely, you know, there, there is going to be a fact, and it's already happening, that the automation is removing removing the lower layer of menial jobs because that's what at the moment the AI can do successfully at the moment. It can do the basic measurements, you program it, train it on the historic data, which is a whole issue in itself around yeah. bias and ethics. Yeah. Um, and then it can it can release that from you, okay? But then you say, then what's the next devolution? Are we got, in doing that, we've definitely got a trade-off if they're allowed to just go and learn. Who's keeping an eye on that? AI as it continues to learn and understand how do we know it's predicting correctly and that's one of my interesting research questions at the moment that as it starts to filter higher up as the AI becomes more able to do that because at the moment it can do very basic things and I think this is what people are overly worried about that it can't make those complex decisions that management have to make in be sitting between technology and humans yeah well but who's to say that it won't happen because quantum computing is coming in and um, we're getting deep learning, which hasn't been enabled for about 30 years. But now that the computing systems, the GPU and CPU, are now enabling to look at neural networks from a computing perspective and look at the nonlinear connections that we have as humans, that's then sort of mapping how our brain works, right? It probably so and build into the algorithm linear and non-linear responses. Yeah. And just, just to top it off, Harvard released a nice paper about a month ago, which I've included in a recent fellowship bid that I've put in, looking at human and machine complementary training. So a quick brief of how machine learning is trained, and you probably a lot of the viewers will know how, but it's trained in isolation on historic data and it's taught the response. It goes into the wild to test it, to make sure the responses are going correctly. And then we build the algorithms and the AI becomes a subset of that. But what they've done at Harvard is to say, okay, let's, let's like you would in a team as a manager, let's build on people's strengths and get them to do the things they're strong at. So the machine is really strong at this efficient, making decisions much quicker than we can about menial tasks. Yep. However, when it comes to where a human would be better at making that decision, let's make it complementary and train it together so that the machine always has this fallback default to what a human would do in that situation. But of course, that's how going to have to be an agile tool because as we progress and technology progresses, say in five years' time, those decisions are necessarily going to have to be flexible and malleable to change with what our value sort of reference would be at that yeah. time. But I think that's quite an exciting um, development to come out of machine learning practice. So there is this recognition that we need to have trustworthy technology moving forward. And it's also explainable. Yeah. Um, we have the black box problem that a lot of the algorithms are not explainable. We don't know how they 
make the decisions that they do, which causes a lot of issues around trust and ethics. For instance, a very straightforward example, your risk profile for finance is based on an algorithm. If it's a black box and you can't explain it, how can you explain to the customer or society why you were then refusing them access to this portion of financial services, for instance? Yeah. So I think that well, I think that is really um, optimistic because I don't think many people are um, not aware of the benefit of having algorithms and um, yeah natural language processing and machine learning um, advance. But what people are not comfortable with in the main is that then it just self takes over. Mm-hmm. learns the snowball effect happens and at some point it decides that we shouldn't be involved in the uh, in the activity um, and how you say it where it just advances to a point where then there's a creative decision on our side I think is striking the balance incredibly logically so that's from a technical perspective hopefully where we move toward but if you just leave that in the hands of um Highly, mo- highly, highly motivated to succeed competitive capitalist tech entrepreneurs, um, then it might or it might not. This is where it comes back nicely to policy making and uh, regulation, which is obviously um, one of the reasons we wanted to talk with you. Because, you know, the last few years particularly, we've had so much of that coming to the fore in the news where big tech are getting questioned and... Um, it's going to be a massive topic and it's going to be a thing for us to get right. What are you involved with, Karen? Um, and um, how's the landscape right now in terms of where you think it should be versus where it needs to get to for policy and regulatory? Okay. Yeah. If I, if I start with the FinTrust project, which is kind of self-explanatory, is, yeah. is, is financial engineering to be trustworthy. So that is an interdisciplinary project that I co-lead with um, Professor Avan Morsel and Kavila at Newcastle University. So that's bringing together a team of myself, social science, and Kavila's uh, human-computer interactions, and Ard is an expert in distributed systems. So we're all collaborating together so that different work packages include an appreciation of the social side of what is trust and how, like I said, the ABI plus model, how does that occur in society? How do we develop something that then reflects um, behavioral sponsors of the technology to say customers or or members of society, and then turning that into taking like the feasibility, accessibility, explainability and safety of the resultant machine learning package that then can be used for AI. So one, well, two of the outcomes from that is we're gonna produce what's called an ethical toolkit that um, is a wrapper around current algorithms that draws out a lot of the bias that we've heard about in the news, you know, bias that can, I think it was a picture I saw the other day where an AI had actually changed Barack Obama to a white man um, based on what it had learned, which is, Yes, needs needs looking at from an ethical perspective. But in order to try, like I say, it steps towards it. I think it's got to be an agile solution that can evolve and develop as we do and the technology does. And that will be a toolkit that can be, it's open source because it's produced by universities, but they can take the wrappers and put it around your existing algorithms to actually draw out any bias. And then another aspect, because we're working with, as you'll know, Atom Bank is like the, approaching unicorn challenger bank in the northeast 
Um, and we're working with them to, to sort of test pilot these and we're producing a prototype of an emotion intelligent bot. So you've got your watts and assists, et cetera, from IBM and the big players. But this is more looking at can we get a bot that's a bit more friendly, a bit more respondent to the customer and actually can recognize the emotions in your voice. Like, now, I know um, like, the, uh, like the smiling assassin, that, that sounds to me. Well, well <laughs> I'm saying before you get there, that, yeah. that this can have two effects, right? The one that is too human, but we know it's automated. And the other side, will it judge us? So we've done some preliminary studies to setting up some vignettes around this because I'm very interested in that from a psychosocial yep. perspective. And it was quite surprising what we got, which comes back to sort of Jung's thing about, um, you know, it's easy, it's easy to... Um, to think that's why most people, you know, it's hard to think. That's why most people can only judge. And what came out of the a very small sample test was that people felt that Emma, as we called the bot, would be more judgmental over, say, your expenditure in your account and what mm. you've done with your finances. Whereas XR023, <laughs> which was the functional bot vignette, they disclose no problem. You know, you can have a look because you can't judge me. So again, you've got this complex, which we've still got to unpack, by the way, this complex interaction of how humans are responding to this automation of, of different processes. And Karen, have you have you um, have you watched Interstellar, the film? Yes. <laughs> Sorry about this, but you know, know where yeah, you know where you can adjust the um, the robots level of um, humor, for instance, Yeah. then with Emma, perhaps, you know, if I'm thinking about this, I'm like, I don't want a 10 out of 10 Emma looking at my finances here. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure that's the reaction of everyone. Just notch it down to, you know, an investigative 7.8. And I'm happy mm -hmm. with that. But this comes back to the um, Azen's theory of planned behavior as well. And part of an antecedent of that is perceived behavioral control. So what we like if we're intending to do things is we like that perceived that we have some control over it. So these are the complex issues that we're looking yeah. at systems and how we build it. And also part of um, that theory is, is social norms are, are with our peers, which could be vast in, in terms of fintech. So again, if, if, say if you or a bunch of friends came into reaction with Emma and you, you came up with that, well, it's like interstellar, you've got to turn it down. Then you probably get a bit of group think people that you hang out with think, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no I don't want that. Yeah. And this is why it's interesting to, to be able to be in a position to do the experimentation. And linked to that, I've just recently put in a UKRI fellowship bid to, to give me four years. It's almost like doing another PhD to look at more the regulatory side, because as I've got more involved in this side, I thought, well, hang on, who is watching these machine learning systems going forward and how how do we know they're trustworthy? How do we know once they set them out there, who's checking on them? So we have the FCA, for instance, within FinTech, but their tools are not progressing at the same rate as the level of innovation, like you say, that we're saying from, from a more um, commercial company who want to get into the FinTech area. So my proposal is there that they have the power to make these life-changing decisions. But we, we need to look at this trade-off, and I think that's what you're getting at here. There's this, this trade-off at the moment that society is not sure about. It has an ethical component about, is this bot or the algorithm behaving in my best interests? Yeah, absolutely. And then 
And then we've also got who's regulator, who's protecting me online. So there's a there's a whole well, new sort of new strand of theory called corporate digital responsibility. So we've had corporate social responsibility, but it's now becoming merged with, well, you know, the corporates are going to have to take responsibility to make sure that they can explain what they're doing with our data and financial transactions, that it's definitely safe. And like you say, trust and ethics that combined in that, you know, what sort of data or technology are they using? Are they just using an off-the-shelf, not thinking about the ethics of it, et cetera, to get it to market? Or, you know, we need to step back. So another project I'm involved in is looking at explainable AI again, looking at the more philosophical, what are the questions we need to be asking of the data? So that one's it. Uh, initial stages asking sort of the values and norms that we should be thinking about because as you say i think quite rightly a lot of us while the automation is okay on one hand you know as i had someone say to me yeah well we don't want to progress to terminator quickly do we <laughs> where they're making all this which is a you know at the odd end of the scale but you can see where people's fears come from yeah absolutely and i think um that clarifies quite a lot on the customer or the consumer's type of psychology with the advances. And then if we go to the companies, which of course, yeah. you know, Innovate Finance and Charlotte Crosswell there um, are doing great jobs of trying to create um, environments and sandboxes for innovative fintechs to, um, to develop before they meet fully with a FCA kind of large business regulation. Um, and that's the balance that, of course, um, you need to strike in some of the stuff you're doing there, I'm sure, would be balanced incredibly well. But then if we look at an example right now, like Wirecard, um, for yeah. instance, where it's um, something that I'd be really interested in, I'm sure the audience would be interested, uh, no pressure, on, on your view. Because, of course, from one perspective, that's a company that came out the blocks from you know, a couple of employees to becoming a really large, profitable um, business over a period of time and, and delivering quite a big infrastructure into the fintech sector, actually. Um, it's the underlying payment um, system that a lot of um, you know, neobanks used and, and used till very recently, and it's gonna cause a lot of problems. But then on the other perspective, the regulatory policy makers needed to potentially get in there a little bit earlier. And, I, yeah. and, and just to protect FCA here, um, not that I feel like it's my role to do it. I think they had seen some red flags and they had alerted the oh, market. Oh, I, I definitely think so, yeah. I'm not, I'm not a specialist here, you are. So can you, you just talk us through that that situation with Wildcard? And, and I suppose the, the, the question after we understand your view of it as it's happened is how are we going to improve that moving forward yeah. and make sure it doesn't happen? I think it goes a bit back to Dan Pink's thing talked about autonomy mastery purpose. He said, and I agree with him, that when the profit motive becomes detached from the purpose motive, bad things happen. It's as simple as that. And that's what you see here. I think sometimes when people get into the mindset that we can make a lot of money. And if you think back to 2008, the same thing happened. The algorithms were not equipped to deal with it. So there were red flags with the algorithms then that led to the crash in 2008. And there will have been red flags in the algorithms within Wirecard now. But I think the profit motive overtook the purpose motive. And also, you have that theory of punctuated equilibrium theory and tight coupling. So it's a bit like Nokia, the 
perfect example is Nokia and Apple, okay? So if you think that Nokia were tightly coupled to all their strategies, structure, et cetera, that was all working, it was making them a lot of money, they were the leader in their tier, okay? But what happens is it becomes so tightly coupled and, for want of a better word, believe their own hype that they can't be touched in that position. Then when it starts to uncouple because a new newer challenger comes in to, to knock the incumbent off there, so again, Christensen's disruptive innovation coming in, taking the market, disrupting them. They were so tightly coupled, they had no way to be agile and flex and adapt to the changes that they need to do. So we've all got swipe screens now, which we don't think a second back, but you know, before then we didn't. You know, I love my Blackberry and stuff. So what you can see is when, when the profit motive becomes detached from the purpose motive, you get a problem. And I think if we had more data to evaluate what happened in Wirecard, because how can you just lose all those billions and not be sure where it went? Were they not risk analysis managers somewhere? But maybe, a bit like Nokia, if you're feeding up the chain, you maybe don't feel psychologically safe to go, guys, guys, or females, you know, all of us as a community, what are we doing? This is going to go wrong. Mm -hmm. And it might be, like you said, the FCA saw the flags, but perhaps they got the reassurances from the senior level who had taken accountants and from their own people to say, no, everything's fine. What we're doing is fine. Yeah, there's a little bit of a problem here, but we'll guess. Because we're not good at failure in the UK. We are well, it's not just the UK, but we're not good at admitting to failure or flagging up that there's a problem because that then has a bad effect on our psychological safety. So culture then plays a part in Wirecard. Were they allowed to have a voice to say, our purpose is getting detached from what so, we were trying to do? So I've, I think that this is um, like with um, sports teams, where you have a where you have a a manager who comes in. Well, I'm a Liverpool fan, so let's go <laughs> exactly. on to Klopp, shall we? Exactly. I mean, I, I, just, exactly. I, I just says, you know, to my partner, etc. I said, why can't all leaders be like Klopp? I mean, so <laughs> humble. Um, you know, Kenny Dalglish came on and, and congratulating Graham Stewart, for manager, saying, "How do you get that consistency?" And he said, "It's everybody. It's a collective. It's a collective from the cleaners who work at Anfield right the way through. It's all of us in it together." And you can see it in the body language of the players. When I said, "Wouldn't it be great to play for Klopp?" Because you know he he gives you that reassurance, he makes you feel psychological safe, and as he said himself, if it's not working, then we give them support, we talk to them and give them support. But if you think about the wire card, if you were a junior member of staff and you saw that this was coming, how free do you think they were to actually flag it up? I bet you know if you could look inside, there were instances where there were flags coming, but because they were tightly coupled around their own height. They just didn't change until it's too late it's fallen over which is exactly yeah. what happened in 2008 and partly that was a result of the algorithms were trained but not under that stressed condition so they kept doing what they were trained to do nobody really checking them and all the systems start falling over because they said all right what do i do here or oh, algorithm right you sell you sell it there you sell it there and then like you say the system just adapted and changed until it fell over so, so that's that's how i see it so i think um what um is the ideal situation is having you know a manager um or a leader who's fantastic and buys into the collective and um doesn't keep people tightly coupled 
So that's one way to um, make sure that um, this type of situation would, wouldn't happen again. But my, my question is really, Karen, from a regulatory perspective, like let's think of this as the FCA or a mini FCA in fintech. Like how can you do that? Do, do you need to do you need to go in and actually critique the influencing managerial skills of the leaders, which is feels like a step too far for yeah, um, companies to allow people to do that. So all we can do is really try and educate on that point, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so it's it's this is challenging. Like it is. To, to try and avoid that, you know, my job I suppose is to try and work out if I think companies have the right um, value proposition, uh, influencing leaders to say to our candidate base, hey, here's a great organization to join. Um, you know, the um, the regulatory and the policymakers' job is to make sure that algorithms can't get out of control, to make sure that there's checkpoints, that, you know, information's drawn out. And maybe what needs to happen is that it has to be the very senior individuals who are sat on the table and obviously, you know, they understand the repercussions if um, if things go go wrong. Right. It's a, in, in complex systems theory, it's about it's what you're calling about the track the attractors to the system. Who are the good attractors, and you want to avoid the detractors of the system who bring conflicts. Okay. So what you're thinking about is the attractors can then express limitations of the system because, like you say, you can't go across everyone. But if you have a representative sample for one, uh, of people who are doing good things in fintech and they're supporting the FCA, like I'm working with Innovate Finance, if, if this fellowship is funded, fingers crossed, um, to do just that, to get a sample across from industry, academia and citizens to say, okay, if we were allowed in theory to build a co-created regulated system that would assist the FCA, so including the FCA and policymakers via Innovate Finance, um, what would it look like and how can we help build that? So we'd have a digital governance tools or tools because in, in machine learning, it's about solutions, you know, not just one tool. And again, it comes back to the concept of agility to allow it to be agile, to allow it to flex and adapt yeah. because it needs to be. Because I say, if someone, if then we get a new company comes through with some good practice of what they're doing, then we need to look at co-creating that, put it all in the cloud so that it's open source and can be, you know, addressed by the FCA. That's one of my visions for it. Like I say, it, it's a challenge and that's why it'll probably take me four years or more <laughs> to do it. But it's looking at that view across this so concept of a social license to operate as well. How can we do the best for the citizens in what we do with the people who have the most influence? Yeah. So if we can help the FCA, like you say, I'm defender of the FCA. It's got to be there. We've got to have that body that says, hang on, you know, we've got to think about the, the broader impacts, not just about running a business, not just about your particular customer segment, but what about the unbanked? What about people who are struggling in society? We need to think about the impact on them. And that also links to the robotic discussion as well. You know, what happens with automation? Yeah, but I that, I see around regulation is that if we go for the clock method, it is about everybody doing as much as they can and attract these people to the system of tech for good and doing good business with technology through ethical approaches. Then I think we're going towards a step. But as you said, there's no, it is challenging to actually get people to step up and take that move to, to collaborate, truly co-create and collaborate. Yep. And in a microcosm, you've got that at Liverpool Football Club, luckily for me, right now. 
The, um, um, the, the thing that um, I think is really interesting about your, your background and what you're focused on is it's almost like that um, chaos line that you describe. And I think what would really benefit, um, let's just say fintech moving forward, it's something that I'm working on because we, you know, Mana, we've got Mana Labs, which has a, a partnership with Imperial College. Yeah. And it's, and it's purely from, I'm just really lucky to speak to loads of um, academics um, the whole time. And I speak to lots of um, people in the sector. And I just can see so obviously that if you can get the communication line between them to operate as efficiently as possible, we're going to have better outcomes. Mm-hmm. And what's, um, really exciting about what you're doing is you're working in that line well and this is where Innovate Finance come in and of course your partnership with um, or your work with Atom Bank for instance um, and, and, I'm a, and I'm a big big buyer into that I think that companies haven't traditionally thought about utilising academia as much because there's a notion of well look we're you know we're a startup. we don't want to have anything that feels like it's corporate or academic. This is today. This is making things happen. And I think what my observations are, are well, actually, the companies who don't just go from zero to 100 people or make a bit of money, but the ones who make a difference over 10 or 20 years, more often than not, actually, it is fusing academics with people with the best skill sets from sector and then a real big bunch of enthusiastic people bought into the mission. And that's complex, right? That is being able to, to segment that all together. And, um, and, and that's what I wanted to, to kind of ask you is, you've had a career which tends to be the best ones where you've had you know, industry experience and then academic experience. So you understand how to bring these together. Um, why don't we see more of this? Why don't we see um, people who are encouraged to to toe that line we just see wonderful academics who you know my evenings after a busy day i'll read their papers because i know there's so much value in it Um, and then i see people who are just careerist the whole time and we just see so little with brilliant universities and groups coming together to make the absolute best companies this was, this was brought up actually at the recent COGEX um, conference that I was part of, which yep. is run out of Cambridge and the Turing Institute. And there was actually acknowledgement there. There was interdisciplinary panels and industry. And I, you've probably seen on LinkedIn, I call myself a pracademic because I see that I'm ma- marrying the practical and the academic together, even yep. in the proposal that I did with the professor. And he said, that's why I like working with you because you give me that different perspective having been in industry. And I think the reason why you don't see more of it is one, it's not rewarded that much. I mean, I'm just finishing off a paper that I'm presenting on Thursday, actually, about, about university spin-outs and how we should encourage like an entrepreneurial commercialization skills of research to yeah. actually do it. But it's, it's very much in the infancy because the, back to reward, the dangling carrot for an academic is publications not working with industry. If someone happens to read your work, like you do from Imperial or various professors, and then they incorporate in their work, great. But that would just be seen as an impact outcome for an impact 
case study that mm. goes into our evaluation. So what we've got to do, and a professor calls for this from Cambridge um, at the COGEX, is say we've got to look at the government helping us to change the academic system. And I've been saying this for a few years when I was at Durham University and here saying we're, we're running the risk, ironically. I said we're too reliant on foreign students propping up our system. I did a risk analysis on the costs which I wasn't listened to because I was junior staff in, in the university, but it's coming to fruition in COVID. I said, if something happens, like for then I was thinking that China would develop their own great universities, which they are starting to do now. Why would people then come to the UK, except perhaps for the experience of studying at Cambridge, Oxford or Durham or some of the top Russell Group universities yeah. in Newcastle. But as we've seen, that's a big risk. But the reason it doesn't happen so much in, in, in academia is like I say, we split our time between research, teaching and administration. So the actual time that we have for industry engagement, which takes a lot, a lot of time, as I've found in the last few years, building up the Northeast ecosystem with FinTech North, who's a partner of Innovate Finance in the National um, FinTech Network and FinTech Scotland. It, it takes it takes a lot of effort to go to events, like you say, that are not academic in in their focus. Like I've been to a few of the Innovate Finance events in London uh, on on gender inequalities in fintech leaders who are led by females and these sorts of things. But it it needs to change. And I was really pleased to hear at Cogex that a senior academic was actually calling for it because Cambridge is known for its spin-outs. I mean, it's surrounded by a lot of tech spin-outs. So why why is the system again is is detracting from pushing academics well, towards why do, why do you think um why do you think that is, Karen? So again, without naming <laughs> without naming too many institutes, um so I'm aware of Actually, some of the things you just talked about where um, the applicants this year to um, innovative degrees and master's programs internationally are just gone. So a lot of the people um, at that university are spending their time trying to um, put events on to try and encourage people yeah. to, to come and join the course because of course they need to be able to um to fund them and they're struggling and these are premium institutes certainly in the uk um so that's obviously a stress um so you were right a few years ago to have forecast that um and then we've got these discussions where you know a university is now going to do a lot of their lectures and sem well, lectures probably predominantly online um yeah. which it i'm sure you've got I'm yeah. sure you've got you've got a view on, um, and for me it just all feels like um, a very interesting point where I suspect maybe too many people were encouraged to go into higher education who possibly didn't need to, but I suspect for the ones who definitely should and are compelled to and will do great things for for, for going that you know that physical presence and that. Um, that time where you get to meet with people and build relationships and great ideas are spawned would be a huge detriment to, to not go and live in those environments. Um, and then also the incentive to be published um, feels like from a, a different era, right? Like what, 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 like what's the benefit of that for um, the UK and the North and in London and, you know, 
broadly speaking, not having spin-outs from this fantastic research and development. Because like, you, like you, you pointed out, you know, I'm one of the people who reads this stuff and is just like, this is gold. Like this is, <laughs> you know, famously Steve Jobs, right, used to just go around and see what was happening with PhDs and then set up uh, companies off the back of it. So how is that going to be, uh, how is that going to be changed? What, what's the incentive that's stopping universities from doing that right now? Because they need to think, what's the next phase of us being profitable? Because it's probably different. Yeah, I think, well, the REF system is one thing because universities, so that's a research excellence framework. So we've got three of them. We've got the REF, the TEF and the KEF. So we've got research excellence framework, knowledge exchange is a new one, which hopefully will lead to more of this work and then teaching excellence framework. So we've got three sort of similar Ofsted, would you like, um, regulatory systems to have to comply with. But as you're always taught unofficially, that the research is the most important thing. The research is what makes you an esteemed academic. If you don't publish, like I say, the saying is, publish or die, because you are basically, if you're a great teacher, it won't matter if you're not publishing. You know, I was, I've been told that informally and formally many, many times, um, that this is how it's constructed, because when you get the league tables, although we go across impact and environment, it's usually the research that is the foremost indicator. It is changing. And I think a lot of key people are starting to push the boat, as I heard at COGEX, but it, it, again, systems sometimes, when they're historic, are slow to adapt and change because it will mean a wholesale change. I think the likes of Harvard and Stanford, who are, like you say, liaising with Silicon Valley, et cetera, it's maybe a bit easier because there's a lot of money. They're cash, cash rich and they can easily set up things. I don't think that's necessarily true in Newcastle. You know, none of the companies up there are hugely cash-rich, apart from maybe Sage and a few other big ones. But will they do work with us on certain events. And we've got what are called knowledge transfer partnerships um, from Innovate UK, which are a best-kept secret, where you can apply for this joint with, with um, industry and then academic partners and you have an actual associate in the company working with you on a problem so you produce the papers but you're also giving benefits to the company they're great they've just launched a new one called an mtp so a management transfer partnership but they're brand new so i think that there's hope i'm always optimistic always cook yeah. half hope that we are moving towards it but i would like to see it move a little bit quicker because like you when i started to get into academia full-time i was going this is like you, gold dust. If I'd known half of this when I was a manager, I would have been so much better if I'd had the broader perspective, the whole yeah. complex adaptive system. And I think now they're, they're, I've read reports where the Times Higher Ed is saying, we need to be more interdisciplinary. I'm going, I've been saying that for years because as a program manager, you know, uh, in a business school, we teach separately organizational change, separately human resource management, separately finance and accounting separately economics um separately strategy and i'm going but that all comes together when you're running a business any decent project manager goes across all of these so why why don't we build programs around that 
And so it's one of the reasons why I'm looking at creating a fintech program, but I'm having meetings with people in fintech to say, what would the ideal graduate look for you in best practice? Would it be about the regulation policy? Do they need to know this more? Would it be about the law, cybersecurity, and what you're doing in fintech? Would it also be about an appreciation of the internet of things, which I can have? We've got an Institute of Coding in um, Newcastle. We've got a National Center of Excellence for Computing. We've also got National Innovation Center for Data. So we're getting all this anonymized data that it's producing really great insights into big data sets. We've also got the influential National Innovation Center for Aging, where it's looking at, again, why should age be a barrier to preclude you from various things? And it's not saying that uh, somebody who was 104 against the odds survived COVID-19. So we need to reframe what we're doing as well as we potentially live longer. So then when you bring that all together, there is change starting to happen, but I would, like yourself, I'd like to see more pracademics and give them the skills. Again, this is a future of work in order for us to, to educate the next generation. I think there needs to be this synergy, one without the others, for me personally, others may disagree, loses something. Karen, because with um, with um, if you're a really um, bright, motivated individual who, who has probably been good at academia, and you were thinking, okay, I'm going to go take an undergraduate, master's, PhD, potentially. Given you know about fintech now, what's the course that you would take? Um, be that at Newcastle or wherever. And there isn't one specifically in fintech. You don't That's think there's a particular right over the next ten years? If you you know like seven years ago, you might have said programming. Now, would you say if somebody got really good at neurolinguistic? programming or you know machine learning or uh, actually um, go take a creative course anything in particular yes. is Absolutely, because I was talking to Glenn Smith from Rocket Payments, actually, and he's, he is a design thinker. And we did a podcast for, for Edinburgh Design School with Professor yeah. Christine, and he's a design thinker and very creative. And he's married that together in his own company. So I think it is this interdisciplinarity across saying we've got room for the creatives. We've got room for people who like management, project managers, thinking about tasks and also the agility around that mindset, having an agile mindset, being able to adapt, um, doing the sprints and going back over this iterative cycle. And then we've also got um, people who want to learn the theory, et cetera. And we bring that all together. That's what I'm hoping to do in the FinTech program, bring it all together so that the person who takes that course can step into industry, not fall yeah. foul of the big criticism, that they're not industry ready. They don't have that the skill that the employers are looking for. And that's always a big criticism in whichever university you go to. And as you've rightly pointed out, I agree with you, it's, it, it's looking at it in a different way because we're looking at the future work. Yes, I think basic coding or programming needs to start in skills and BT have got a great program helping that happen. And I was speaking to an American company who've got various modules looking at it. So would you run them at at university level and I said well again we've got the complexity of we might have an English student who graduates in an undergrad in English then wants to transition into the business sector doesn't really have any understanding of statistics or qualitative methodologies and combining them probably never programmed or coded in their life but wants to perhaps look at an energy sector where this is going to become important then we've got to have a 
and a system that is agile to cope with the level that people leave. Like I found that with statistics with students, you know, you put, um, I like, I'm a degree program director for an advanced masters and you've got international students and all sorts of students coming in. But when you put them in a statistics class, some of them have never done statistics before and some of them have done three years of statistics. So again, you've got to offset and be agile to say, okay, right, for them, we're gonna set that coursework check with me for these, I'm going to give you something much harder to work on. You know, you can go on to um, strategic modeling and give me real solid and develop your own scale items. So I think that's also the same when we're looking at the future of work. Different people are going to come in at different levels, say which degree courses they take. But I think across the board, we've got to prepare them for the digital the digital era because yeah. that's what we're living in. And I think people are going to be disadvantaged if they don't have a basic understanding, I say, I've got a basic understanding of coding and programming. I'm intending to develop that over the next few years, but I definitely think that has given me an advantage to working with computer scientists, looking at industry, understanding how machine learning and the subset is AI. You know, um, it's definitely benefited me. So I'm thinking, well, the students would definitely benefit from this. But then we were into the problem of capacity. How do we push 4,000 students at undergrad, you know, undergrad and master's level through basic courses? And I said, well, we, again, we just, we just adjust agile. The different cohorts have different times, different drop-in centers, and now they can do it online as well. So, so I think- with, with 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 everything, as you say, the the kind of pillar that you come back to that's been so useful for you is the um, agile methodology. Um, is there a particular for anybody who's listened to this? Is there a particular book that you would recommend as a a good um, doesn't need to be basic, but a good a good story? where after reading that book, they would be able to think like this? Because it seems to be such a useful way of um, looking yeah. at any any yeah, problem right. and solving it. Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at scrum.org, they have the actual Agile Manifesto that was originally yeah. written. So that'll give you an intro. So Ken Schweiber, et cetera, came up with the Agile and Scrum methodology. And then if you also look at, there's various works. So Christensen looked at jobs to be done. So his yes. book on jobs to be done yeah. is around that edge of intensity. How do you then take that and apply an industry from the perspective of what are the jobs to be done? How do you move them? So a lot of a lot of um, firms and customers are working from that perspective. Like, what is the job to be done for the customer? Let's look at it from their viewpoint. How can we give them gains and relieve the pain of what that task needs to be done? Yeah. And then it goes into, oh, okay, how can we deliver that? Do we? Is it must have, should have, or could have, or would have? And then focus on the key features and deliver them through testing. And it's the iterative part because it reduces the risks of getting it wrong, producing a minimal viable product that's not not worth anything. So this is a sort of process and thing that I use with dealing with development of programs now, research programs thinking, I don't know all the answers. What I need to do is ask the people, how can I produce this product that should produce this minimal viable um, degree course at the end of it? And And Karen, do you have have a a paper or um, uh, an essay that would encapsulate this that we could share in the notes as well. Um, yeah, but I'm, it's in progress, this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I, I actually interviewed some agile managers and some safe 
users. So like broadening out to the to the bigger model of using agile frameworks. Um, but that's that's in development at the moment. Like I say, yeah. I've been working on five or six papers. Well, well I get it. You, you're, you're doing um, you're doing you're doing so much. So I, I tend to ask guests, um, you know, just a little bit. Let's step away from actually, you know, work and think about some of the things that if you um, looked at how you um, process through a day, um, you know, it, it can even be, you know, morning routines, the way that you build sport in, whatever it might be. Can you give us some type of understanding about outside of work, but how you're managing to do so much? Um, so I, I thought that Agile elements really important for people to understand how you look at problems and provide solutions, but then also how you're structuring your productivity. Yeah. Uh, again, that comes back to a sporting mindset, which has been researched as well, because I've done sport all of my life. So I've been a, an amateur triathlete, an equestrian. Um, I, I took tennis about six years ago. And I think it's that mindset of having that realistic achievable goals and breaking it down. So I say my, my morning routines, get up, have breakfast, do a little bit of yoga stretching before I sit down at my desk. Um, and then I usually tackle, look at my emails, see if there's anything urgent, give myself half an hour, do emails on a morning. If there's nothing really urgent, I turn that off, um, start to look at, you know, if I've got marking to do, or I say most of my time the last few months has been formulating a bid, which is it's a large bid for, for 1.5 million pounds. So it's it's a 60 page document. Okay, so that gives you some idea. So gradually working through the different sections, checking, double checking again with collaborators in industry and academia that I'm on point, that it makes sense. And I do that similarly with papers. Now, when it comes to teaching, then a lot of my time is devoted to teaching. So I, I don't have that much time to write, which is disappointing, which is where I think the academic system needs to be adjusted that if people like myself have, have interacted with industry that's my strength um we're reducing good work the papers will come but the teaching aspect takes all of your time in terms of um well you know when people's people are trying to evaluate what is your work allocation model or it's 40 percent teaching 40 percent research and 20 percent admin if you're a degree program director which i am at the moment it's more like 50 percent admin 40% teaching, the research happens in your own time. <laughs> and this is where you get in, into problems with it. And it also leaves little time for the interaction. But how I structure my day is that then I, ha I set myself deadlines and targets and then work backwards from that in a bit of an agile manner. What can I realistically do and block out certain time to fulfill the tasks that I need to do? And that's how I do it. And, my, my, and also, again, a bit of Stephen Cole here to keep the store sharp then i also do physical training so i still cycle i play tennis about four or five times a week i weight train and that that just keeps me fresh or even yeah. just going for a walk at midday because you can't work all of the time so it's do, you, do you do the do you do the um the sport after the day of work to kind of refresh and then go into the evening is yeah. almost a separate yes it's a relaxation because, as you yeah. probably appreciate, my mind is pretty busy. Yeah. It's pretty active. And because I've always had a lot of energy, um, I have to de-stress de yeah. and, and reduce the activity in my brain. Yeah. Uh, 
the other strange thing that I do, which started in my PhD, is I have a notebook beside my bed. So then if I wake up and have a great idea, I write it down because then it'll allow me to go back to sleep. Do you do you um do you do you write um your kind of notes from the day at the end of the day, like before you go yeah, to bed? I, um, I, I do that as well around papers, around ideas. Like and Vivo is a data management tool that's really good. Yeah. Or capturing narratives. So if I've got great ideas or something I want to achieve, I write them down so I don't forget. Um, so yeah, it's about getting into routines for me uh, are the key thing. And that link, there's lots of research to say like a sporting mindset that you self set yourself those incremental goals and training so you peak yeah. at the right time. And I've done that all my life. I mean, my first degree was sports science. Yeah. Um, then I've used though, and, I, and I've seen the research that shows that if you have a sporting mindset and, and can set objective, got realistic goals, that that helps you. And I think that that overlaps again, true complexity style that mixes in with the agile mindset that you're open to adaptation, you're open to emergence of something you didn't foresee, like from a different perspective, which is that's what I, I like. And in speaking to people like yourself, people in industry like Charlotte and her team and Claire Black, etc., or the FinTech North team or FinTech Scotland, I say the GothGo um, development is is amazing in my opinion that it has been built between Kevin Talford on the, on the industry side and the academics working together to go, you know what, we need an open banking representative. So Helen Child at the Open Banking Excellence, they're involved in this with opening everything up so it's benefiting society and not just the few. Yep. So for me, that's, that's a perfect mindset, this, this adaption, um, taking breaks, making sure you keep yourself sharp as well. It is tricky sometimes. There have been times where I've burnt the midnight oil to get something done because we're all human. There's all, we set ourselves our deadline and something happens. Um, you know, like my son has a chronic illness, so there might be a, an odd visit to to hospital all of a sudden that, that changes what you do. But that's, that's part of the adaption. You think, okay, don't beat yourself up for not achieving that day. What, what can we do to, to recoup this and make sure that we're getting back on track? Yeah, that's right. That's the, um, you know, you just got to take the wins that you can and, and they fluctuate, yeah. right? And I think that I see that an awful lot. It's not always sport, but it tends to be that the entrepreneurs who are incredibly successful either have come from um, high-performance sport mm-hmm. um, or they've really been like the best at something. Uh, you get this from uh, musicians, artists, etc. because fundamentally underneath it all, the layer is just somebody setting a long-term goal where they iterate, trying to take steps forward the whole time and they don't quit, right? That's... that's yeah, well, resilience pretty- and grit, like I say, um, I, one of... Um- the professors at Durham gave me, uh, can I say this, gave me the nickname of Rossi because he said, once you get hold of something, you won't <laughs> let it stop. So that was his affectionate nickname for me. What was your, um, with, with with that nickname, I need to know, what was your um, triathlon PB? Ooh, um, well, I did, I did the half Ironmans twice. And wow. I did, um, a long time ago, probably about... Eight hours, I think. But my latest really good one, I was pleased with. I hadn't competed in anything for ages. And my son has Crohn's disease. So the Ride 100 in London, oh, I wow, was yeah. really dropped out from the Crohn's Society. So I said I'd do it. So I had eight weeks to train. And that's 100 miles. And I did it just under six hours. Wow. That's <laughs> so amazing. Like, that's not bad when I'm like, 
approaching 50. Yeah. I was so happy with that one. And with, um, with tennis, Karen, um, you've been playing for six years. What are you, what are you new, like Newcastle champion or what? Oh, no. <laughs> well, actually, sadly, I broke my knee playing tennis last oh, year. God. I slipped on a wet court. So there's a reason yeah. why the professionals don't play on wet courts. But <laughs> before that, in my first year at my local tennis club, I did win the ladies doubles championship. So there you go. Of course you, you did. Of course you did. And um, I'm also left-handed, which apparently is a sign of creativity and an advantage in tennis because you can curl the ball in a certain way. I think it's also a sign of um, being a psychopath, I read as well, statistically. Oh, well, just, just saying. <laughs> um, just, just lastly, thank, thanks so much for taking us through all that. It's, I mean, we could, we could talk for hours, but um, just to, to leave the audience with, what's exciting for you next, Karen? Exciting for me next, I think I touched on it, is... is I'm excited by fintech, about the possibilities it can do and technology for good. That, that's my main thing, is making sure that what I can do in my capacity is make sure it's ethical, it's trustworthy, and we're not seeing the issues that we've had in the past, particularly as AI comes to the fore. And on the other side, what I'm really excited about is working people like Charlotte and Innovate Finance and all the good they're doing and bringing that together, like you say, attractors to the system, people who want to do this. And that's exemplified by this new center that's literally got the funding go ahead this week and that will fund a lot of projects across many sectors but also particularly in finance looking at how we can improve the lives of people so that comes back to the point of i'm very interested in this concept of how do we operationalize the theoretical concept of having a social license to operate for all as fintechs that that does great things like doing good business with AI. So that's yeah. what's really driving me, motivating me. I welcome the tech, but I'm all, I'm fundamentally about this, like you said, this connection between we can't just see tech as a panacea. It has to be the human together. And there's lots of people out there who are probably screaming at this going, I'm doing that, I'm doing that, I'm doing that. And you are. So please keep doing it and attract yourself to the system, help the FCA and everybody who's working in that field. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, brilliant advocate for many things, um, fintech, um, and also, um, you know, fintech up in the north. Uh, a lot of venture capitalists listen to this show, and um, you know, feel feel free to let me introduce you to Karen if you're interested in um, understanding the network of great emerging fintechs yeah. up in up in the north. Um, brilliant having you on the show. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Please do visit us at manasearch.co.uk. At Mana, we find fintech talent by filling the gap between the archaic search firms and the voluminous recruitment firms. We are connected with the best talent within fintech. We conjure our headhunting skills to search and find the mana of the best teams. Please get in touch to find out how we can connect you with the very best talent in the market. All that's left for me to say is thanks once again for your support. Take care, stay safe, and see you very soon on Searching for Mana with Lloyd Warhead.